Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Clark Kent has a job. I just want to go on a date. Faulty metaphor. Kryptonite kills. You're assuming I met the green kryptonite. I was referring, of course, to the red kryptonite which drains Superman of his powers. Wrong. The gold kryptonite's power sucker. The red kryptonite mutates Superman in some sort of weird... Guys, reality. Besides, I can just tell something's wrong. My spider sense is tingling. Your spider sense. Oh, stay behind and put around in the back cave with crusty old Alfred here. Ah, oh, no, I am no Alfred, so no, you forget Alfred had a job. But genius, Mr. White. If Clark and Lois could all the good stories, I'll never be a good reporter. Jimmy also jokes here pretty much every last time. Sorry. Avengers Assemble, let's get it going. Hey, kids, comics! Hello, everybody. That was... <laughs> that was... I, I just said to Michael, you read it, and then had a complete mental block as to what we were doing. You just put that on, and all of a sudden you get you, hello. <laughs> I don't want to listen to this show anymore. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I just uh, pressed record, and we're ready to go. We've got a little preamble that obviously won't make the show, because it was just us going in, press that button, there, do that, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And then I said, are you ready? And then just completely forgot how to speak. And then you yelled at the listeners. <laughs> I yelled to compensate for the fact that I'd forgotten how to speak. Hello, lovely listeners. Sorry about that. I do apologise. But you don't listen to the show for, for professionalism. Oh, no, no. But they don't listen to the show to get yelled at. <laughs> I didn't mean to yell at them. I didn't yell at them. This I didn't yell at you, lovely listeners. It's an abusive relationship for the poor listeners. <laughs> they want to love it, but they I am Brian Banner, <laughs> and they are Lil Bruce. Yeah. Is that what it is? Oh, anyway, yeah, tonight, lovely listeners, yes, we've not seen Man of Steel yet, so we won't be talking about it. As of recording. As of recording. Yeah. Everyone else on the internet has probably seen it, mm-hmm. but we've not. We're sure it's great. Yet. Yeah, it's probably brilliant, yeah, but we've not seen it yet. So. Unless it's really crap. Unless it's really crap. Unless in which it's case, Superman Returns. We've still not seen it, though, have we? So. No. So no Man of Steel talk tonight. What we do have tonight... Is some more How Soon Is Marvel Now? Yep. You know, there's a comic shop if you'd like to go. You may meet some comics that you'd really love. Okay. So you'll go and you'll stand on your own, and you'll read on your own, and then you'll go home and cry and want to die. Just like everybody else does. Um, Yeah, did you like the title of this season, How Soon Is Marvel Now? Did you like that? Yeah, yeah. I thought it was quite good. That that just came to me, didn't it? Yep. Because if you listen to the first episode of How Soon Is Marvel Now, I did not call it that anywhere in the show. What did you call it? I was just going to call it Marvel Now. Okay. And it was only when I was typing up the the gubbins that goes, you know, when you upload it, and then this week's episode... And you came up with it. In tonight's Hey Kids comics, Michael discovers that drugs are bad, okay? And Andrew learns to leave his son alone, (laughs) but not in a bad way. That kind of logline thing that you type up when you upload it. And I just put, How Soon Is... Marvel now! Golly! Has the song been put in any episodes? And when we do a Joker one, we can't call it Dreadful Birthday Day Joker, we've got to call it That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore. In yeah. fact, we should do like Chris Packham did, shouldn't we? Yeah. We should just call every single season or episode now After a Smith yeah. song. <laughs> when we do Preacher, Heaven Knows I'm Miserable. Heaven Knows I'm Miserable now. And um, next year, for when it's Batman's birthday, we've come to wish you an unhappy birthday. <laughs> write these down we're going to forget we're going to forget them yeah even though they're, they're caught for, for, for forever on uh, on this yeah this 
regarding Similar reminders thing. Yeah. Anyway, emails. Unless you've got anything to talk about. Oh, Michael's episode of Views from the Long Box is up. Yeah. As we record this, it came out this week. Michael mm-hmm. and Michael. Messrs. Bailey and Leyland Esquire talking about the Infinite Crisis omnibus, which Michael killed a couple of people with before they actually sat down to talk. It was pretty fun. Yeah, yeah but you've got blood on your dust cover now. There is that. I think it was worth it. It gives a character. The death of a comic reader. It happens a lot around here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd rather not get involved with that one. <laughs> Goes to show how little you know. Um, anyway, yeah, so moving swiftly on, so it's straight to emails on this night. Our first email is uh, Smashing Men Without Fear, which I think he means we're smashing men and we are without fear. Indeed. Well, that's the way I'm interpreting it. If we, if we did, did have fear, then we could not smash that That's men. true. Or we could be Hulk smashing without fear. Yeah. So that works as well. Why are we smashing these men? What have you ever done to us? Well, Hulk just smashes. So we're just smashing. Yeah. We're smashing, as in great. What a smashing time. Well, smash, get a smash. Okay. Whatever. Uh, it's from the lovely Rob Stubbs. Hi, Rob. Hello, Rob. Hello, Andrew and Michael. Insert clever but snarky remark comparing the Leyland Clan to some 70s, 80s TV show I watched. Who could we be this week? Should we be the Keatons? Yeah, okay. From, um, what was that show called? Family Ties. You uh, could be Michael J. Fox, because you're hers, Michael J. Foxy, at the minute. Okay. Foxy. Sound Foxy. Foxy lady. <laughs> Um, I am sceptical starts Rob on the whole Marvel Now attempt to take what DC did with the new 52 while claiming they aren't doing what DC did I'm not against changes to reflect market conditions but this whole coy well we aren't rebooting all our material but we are going to make introduction points for new readers to jump in on is slightly obnoxious in my eyes as for them easing people into the Marvel Now by slowly releasing the material over a six month period versus DC I don't really see much difference in the approach in the long term after all, the entire reason DC did what they did is because of the experience they had when they did the big reboot after the first big crisis, where the titles that were supposed to be the new starting points became spread out over time, diluting the effect. I want to call this the bandage removal experience, where some people just rip the bandage off versus slowly easing the bandage off bit by bit. DC ripped the bandage off, putting out the Reset Universe titles in a short time period, whilst Marvel slowly pulled the bandage off, dribbling out the Now titles over a longer period. Um, I still prefer the Marvel method. Do you? Yeah. I still prefer the DC method. See, the thing with DC, it's instant gratification, yes. But at the same time, you're looking at spending an awful lot of money in one pot. You're going to spend Marvel. the same amount of money. Yeah, but it's spread out, which makes it a little bit easier to afford and to budget for. Yeah. And on that note, DC's new 52 has just completely lost me with the September solicitations. Do you know how many DC books I've got on my order for? Two, and one of those is Astro City. I am not buying 16 Batman books, and that's a conservative estimate. Yeah. Isn't the four Batman titles, four Batman and Robin, four Detective Comics, and four The Dark Knight? So that's 16 Batman books. No Animal Man, though. Uh, No, so I've not ordered you Animal Man, because it's not coming out. I've not ordered you Justice League Dark, but I haven't sent the order off yet, but did you want it? Because it's not written by... Jeff Lemire. I don't know. You'll have to have a look. Uh, There's no Constantine that month. No. But you don't read that anymore anywhere. Mm -hmm. There's no... Well, I do. What's the other one you read? Animal Man. There's no Animal Man. We've just said that. Green Arrow. Keep up. Uh, There may be a Green Arrow, but it's not written by Jeff Lemire. Was it? I thought it was. I don't think so. I'd have to have a look for you. Uh, But I don't think it is. But yeah, I've dropped everything that month from DC because I don't see the point. 
I don't see the point of paying that much money. Well, what about the ones written by the writers who do? Well, even books? even that one, the Batman one, the, the Scott Snyder Batman book is Scott Snyder and somebody else. I may get that one. I may be twisted my arm, but I'm not interested in 3D holographic yeah. covers. I don't care. It's not 1994 anymore, DC. <laughs> I'm not interested, and I'm certainly not interested in paying more money for them. It's, so it's going to get to the point where we're scared of September. Every September, yeah, DC have a new gimmick. It, but it's so blatant in its money grabbery. Yeah. You know, I know it's a business. I know they're out to make money. I know that they make money from Batman books. So let's publish what there's sixteen, 16 Batman, Batman books in one month. Yeah. No, no. And th- I mean, we've already dropped the other Batman books, haven't we? We only read Batman now. Yeah. Because it was getting ridiculous. And let's face it, there's only Batman that's any good, isn't there? There is that, yeah. Isn't the other? Aren't the other ones a bit miserable or dismal? Or Dark Knight was decent. Was it? But Paul dismal. Jenkins jumped ship, didn't he? Yeah. So anyway, Detective's got Ethan Van Skeever. Some nice art going on there. Yeah, I like Ethan Van Skeever. So yeah, but anyway, yeah. So no. So at the moment, DC's just completely outpriced themselves. Fifty p bins though. Well, that's another thing as well. You'll go. We'll go to the comic show in Manchester the month after all those books are out. Yeah. And a shed ton of them will be in the seventy p bins. So we can pick up all sixteen bat books. Yeah, I don't mind paying seventy five p for them. Yeah. Or I'm not paying four, three quid or whatever it'll end up being by the time they put the fancy. 3D covers. No, the the money conversion doobery right. thing. I'm, no, I'm not paying all that for it. We'll get them in the 75p bins in a month, <laughs> like a lot of the new 52. Do you know what's, what would gratify it? Yeah. There was an entire box of Before Watchmen. For a pound each. Yeah. yeah. An entire box of them all. I wonder if Alan Moore would be laughing or crying. He'd probably laugh. <laughs> um, anyway, we interrupted Rob's email. Uh, I'm going to go in reverse order dealing with the Marvel Now issue of Daredevil first, because I've never really been into the title. I'm trying to quantify why I've never been into Daredevil. It has to be a mix of reasons, but the main one has to be I find Daredevil depressing with all the awful things that have happened to him based on what other people have said and the various what-if titles I have read. Um, there is a certain truth in that. But... Yes. That there is all uplifted there, and taken away yeah, now. There is some levity in the Daredevil books. Mm-hmm. Mike Murdoch being Exhibit A. <laughs> yeah, Matt, that's a really good idea. Let's diffuse the situation of people thinking that Matt Murdoch is Daredevil by creating your own twin brother that is in fact you that is Daredevil. So Mike Murdoch is Daredevil, but actually Mike Murdoch is Matt Murdoch pretending to be Mike Murdoch. Yeah, Mike Murdoch's best friends with Patch. <laughs> it would be the best thing Mike Murdoch could see. <laughs> Mike Murdoch wasn't blind. Right. So he had to wear glasses. He had to wear sunglasses all the time right. to make people think that he wasn't blind. Even was, inside. Yeah, Mike Murdoch was Bono before Bono. This just sounds great. Oh, the Mike Murdoch stuff is just great <laughs> stuff. Absolutely fantastic. In that way that is completely ridiculous. But it's brilliant stuff. Sounds it. And, and it's got that great Stanley 60s hit lingo. That is just... He's like Murray Jade on acid, <laughs> Mike Murdoch. So Mike was down with the kids. Mike was certainly down with Whereas the kids. Mike was... Scowled him for Whereas a Matt was a bit stiff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And no one ever questioned why they didn't see Matt and Mike at the same time. And even Foggy goes, I was in college with you for four years. You never mentioned you had a brother. Oh, I'm kind of embarrassed by him. 
I mean, look how uh, down with the kids he is. <laughs> yeah, so there, there is some levity to be found in Daredevil. That said, I think it was a pretty good issue with Daredevil showing his long-time friend his view of the city, which is ironic, as Mac is blind, so he's never really seen the view. Of course, I have no clue if Foggy has ever done this before, but I don't think so. The issue has some great character beats, with them laughing over what happened with the stilt man. Uh, we then have sinister forces at work trying to recreate the incident that led to Daredevil. Uh, Daredevil remembering the smell of the chemicals that blinded him on the rampaging victims, understanding his power limitations, which he uses effectively against his opponents. All of this is good stuff. It's the ending, though, which is the best part and the worst part, with Matt showing up on time to be with Foggy as they wait for the Doctor, no, not that one, to bring the test results. It's the moment of the book where the test results are really bad, with the art showing this long-time friendship in stark detail. It's still depressing, though, which is why I consider it both good and bad. Now onto the Instructable Hulk. I've read a lot more of the Hulk, the larger portion of that being Peter David's run on the title. First off, I like the art for the most part. On the second page you have the waitress getting Maria Hill's order, and if you look at the scene, most of it's fine, except for the bit at the bottom corner with what's supposed to be a waiter getting the empty plate. There's no room for him, her, to be standing there unless he, her, is a floating midget. <laughs> Maybe they are! Yeah. You don't know that they're not a floating midget. So that, that, I think you've no prized it, though. <laughs> There are also the three separate panels where Bruce appears to have no eyeballs, which either has to be deliberate or an accident that reoccurred on multiple occasions, which I found annoying. There is also the one panel where Banner looks like a creepy serial killer with his odd smile and angular chin with the mirror shades on. There's also the odd panel with the mad thinker and the Hulk fighting where the robot head looks like Maria Hill, whilst mentioning the fractions he's going to eliminate after he kills the Hulk. Isn't that a rather odd angle for Maria Hill to be facing as she's looking off to the side instead of shooting at the mad thinker? I had to take issue with two of your statements, Andrew. Only two? <laughs> I'm doing quite well if a listener's only taken issue with two things, I say. I like how they're taking issues with what you're saying and not yes. me. <laughs> uh, while I made the same error myself on the first read-through, it is impossible for that to be Banner's watch, as he was rendered completely naked. It is Maria Hill's watch, which can clearly be determined if you look at the last panel where her hand with the fingerless glove is supporting the again completely naked Banner. Oh, right, OK. I did make a mistake there, though. Okay. That must be Maria Hill's. Why has Maria Hill got a ticking watch? Well, we all have ticking watches. That's stupid, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm Unless an idiot. A beeping watch. I'm an idiot. Yeah, unless it's a digital watch, because we still think digital watches are pretty neat idea, though. Yeah. Uh, I consider this issue one of the best uses of the mad thinker that has happened in a long time. His dialogue isn't clunky. He's not stuck delivering crappy plot exposition to explain his brilliance. And he's actually made into a creditable threat and not just a jokey sort of C-level villain that other creators would kill off in the goriest way possible. I suspect the whole strategist versus mastermind that Mad Thinker was making for his memoir is related to Banner's new role as a mastermind operating in the Marvel Now universe. The fight scene, while short, is well done with both sides going all out. I like Wade's writing for the most part as it appeals to my long-time comic book reader roots and this direction is something I like so far. I think one of the selling points of this is the Hulk doesn't talk except for the cry of rage in one panel, which lets Banner be the voice of the opening issue, making him of equal importance. I want to know what is in all the reams of paper Banner shows Hill, which takes her to shoot Banner in the head option off the table. I also want to know who the mysterious person is who has the information for insurance purposes to stop them from disappearing Banner has at another remote location. This shows that Banner is operating at that mastermind level, where he is considering what everyone else is doing or will do, and operating to redirect them to what he wants them to do. It takes him and the Hulk out of the reactive state they are normally in and makes them active. After all, how many times can we see Banner or the Hulk being chased, which leads to either Banner turning into the Hulk and or the Hulk smashing things up without it becoming boring? 
Uh, I can understand the Hulk out, but it does leave the question of why the Hulk didn't smash puny shield director girl. I know the dialogue in the diner where they also serve barbecue, which is not chicken fried, tries to set it up, but the Hulk won't smash Hill because she brought him chicken fried pork chops. But it is the one really flat moment in the story. I suppose Hill could have told the Hulk that the thing hit him and he went that way. The bits of suspense where you kept expecting the Hulk to show up were very good in the diner. Yeah, where they kept spilling coffee all over him. Yeah, that was my only complaint about the issue. I think I said you missed the Hulk out. Yeah. There should be a Hulk out. I don't ever get bored of Hulk outs. I think they're fantastic. I like them not being one, really. Did you? Yeah. Oh, I think the, the, I the Hulk outs are fun. I the fun. It did, but as, as he says, why did the Hulk not just turn around and go, why did you hit me, stupid shield girl? Smash. Yeah. Nick Fury did have a son that showed up in the short-lived Fury of S.H.I.E.L.D. series that started in 1995, but he was a white guy who thought his real dad was Nick Fury's brother who had been killed by Fury. It turned out he was really Fury's son. His name is Scorpio, so he would be Scorpio Fury. Awful 90s art, though. Really, really awful. Yeah, well, that's an awesome name. Scorpio Fury. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I'm out for now. You're American pal Robert T. Stubbs Jr. Irish tea cat. Rob Alley the fourth. Galad Dulac. Paladin of Light. Crimson Alloy. Trellia Sun Shatter. Trellia Lost. I think I've covered all his aliases tonight. Thank you, Rob. Good. I'm glad you enjoyed Hulk and Daredevil. Our next email. Uh, does this mean Spider-Man is powered by his hope? Blue? Hey? Hey? It's from Luke Jacanetti. No intro this week. Uh, no. Ah. <laughs> I'm getting fed up for trying to come up with him. <laughs> Anyway, Luke's, Luke's doing, doing, doing alright on no sleep at the minute, isn't he? Hmm. Uh, dear Webhead and Spider-Boy Blue. I presume you're Spider-Boy Blue. I want to be Webhead. Oh, okay. I can't be Spider-Boy Blue, can I? That'd be what? silly. You are now. Alright. I have never read Spider-Man Blue, but I am familiar with Loeb and Sales' work over on Superman for All Seasons, which I read while on my honeymoon, and really enjoyed. I'm not particularly well-versed in Spider-Man history. I know the broad strokes of it, and parts of it are very, very dear to me. Venom stuff, mostly. But the stuff which covered in Spider-Man Blue is actually stuff I have never read. Does that help or hinder the enjoyment of the story, I wonder? Seems like Loeb keeps the gist of the story from the original, so that the previous knowledge is nice, but not really a requirement. Mary Jane knew Peter was Spider-Man from the beginning? Really? I was not familiar with that one. I'm pretty sure there was a similar retcon for The Flash before the crisis, where it was revealed that Iris West figured out that Barry Allen was The Flash almost immediately, but understood that if Barry went to such lengths to hide his identity protector, then she should play along. I very much enjoyed hearing you guys talk about the series and think I will see if I can check this book out at some point. I mean that literally, because this is the sort of collected story which I imagine our local library would carry in their comics section. Well, yes, do that, and let us know what you thought of it, because I love Spider-Man Blue. I think I made that point many times, didn't I? Yep. Uh, Daredevil Yellow and Hulk Grey are now on the docket. We're, we are considering covering those. And Michael does want to do some of the Batman Lobe sales stuff, don't you? Mm-hmm. It's just deciding how to cover that. Yeah. I do like your long Halloween idea of just covering them every month. Oh, as, as they are when in the it happens, yeah, yeah, I like that idea. I would like to see Lobe and Sale do an Iron Man comic. Gold, perhaps. Oh, that's a good idea. Iron yeah. Man Red. Iron Man Red and Gold. Yeah. That's quite good. Or Iron... Can't do well, no, gold it. works for money. Or Iron Man Green. Money. Green, uh, I guess, yeah. See? I like that, yeah. Oh, but gold's a good title. In this vein, because I would like Andy Is Here, having read all the original series and being... Fam- I would be like Andy Is Here, having read all the original issues and being familiar with the story enough to contextualise the retelling. But what story to do? 
Tony's early stories were more worldly than Spider-Man's Walt, with Tony jetting all over the world. For instance, I love the three-part story of the televised duel between Shellhead and Titanium Man, but I can tell a personal tale about that story. I like the Silver Age and Bronze Age of Iron Man, but I'm in a minority. The obvious one would be Demon in a Bottle, but I don't know how you could do that story in this format without it being overly maudlin. Armor Wars, perhaps? Eh, too bad that'll never happen. What they could do, mm. to make it personal as well, is the Titanium Man fight. And because um, of the bit where Happy Hogan dies... Does he get better? You have the Happy Hogan story. And then the plot twist at the end is, oh no, Tony, I just got knocked out and fine now. It's <laughs> a bit of a cop-out, though, isn't it? A little bit. Alright. Some random notes. You guys mentioned that I did not reveal my wife's concept for why Luke Cage would have been anti-registration. I will rectify that situation now. When I complained about Bendis' awful new Avengers issue with Luke going anti-reg because of some grand feeling of oppression and disillusionment, she indulged me and let me go on a bit. Makes no sense, I complained. Bendis is using Cage as a leftist racial allegory, something which his best stories almost never touched on. The best Cage stories were about how he was a curmudgeon, pushed and pushed and pushed until he had his cathartic release of going to town on Mace or Stiletto or Discus or Mr. Fish or whoever at the end of the story. Bendis is treating him like the Falcon, which makes no sense! Ah! My wife thought about it for a minute and responded, well, of course it'd be anti-registration. Why would he work with whoever the authority is? They've never given him a first shake. You put me in jail for a crime I didn't commit and you want me to work for you? You accuse me of killing my best friend and you want me to work for you? There's no way he'd work for them. And it's head-slappingly brilliant. Of course Luke Cage is anti-registration, but he's not a character with grand social designs or some sort of martyr to racial equality. He's a guy who thinks about the here and now, doing right by himself, and, by his point in continuity, his family. Luke would tell the SHRA crowd to shove it because he personally would never work for such a group, would never be the man, so to speak, because of his personal history, not because of some heavy-handed social justice allegory. But Bendis cannot have Luke behave in this manner because he wants to tell his story about how awful Iron Man is, the stand-in for George W. Bush, and how evil and racist the stand-in Republicans are. So logic and history are tossed and I immediately cancel my subscription to New Avengers. True story. It is good, that, isn't it? Because it just, it does come from character for why he would be anti-registration. Yeah. Why could the professional writers not get that right? I I don't know. This is going to be the last time we mention Civil War because I'm bored of it now. But (laughs) I had to buy that again today because it was this month's Marvel Collector's graphic novel hardcover. Did that pain you? Yes. It really pained me. The guy behind the counter talks to me every time I buy one. Right. and talks to me about the comics so he must be a comics fan because we were on about and I was buying it and I went I actually don't like this mm. and we ended up having a conversation about Secret Wars instead <laughs> <laughs> but anyway enough Civil War let's expunge that drivel from our head as an aside in the back of that book there is a wonderful interview with Mark Miller where he says that I didn't really have to work at the characters they all just spoke naturally did they really? that's what he that's his quote that's what he says <laughs> Enough Civil War. Uh, Luke's email continues, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and an American werewolf in London. Just remember the old saying, in England, 100 miles is a long trip. In the United States, 100 years is a long time. (laughs) Green Goblin Power Rangers version. Never understood this particular fan terminology, since the Goblin mask was not visored, as all Power Rangers Super Sentai helmets have been. And the costume is not spandex, as all real Power Rangers Super Sentai costumes have been, except in the armoured costume used in the Power Rangers movie. And I doubt we're all subconsciously specifically referencing the movie, yes? Yeah, yeah, I'll give you that. It is just standard terminology to call it the Power Rangers uniform, but when you think about it, it isn't a Power Rangers uniform at all. Mm. It's quite naff. Yeah. 
but it's not a Power Rangers uniform. Mm. So come up with another name for it, and we'll call it that. Did you call his glider Voltron? No, no, he didn't. He just called it his glider. Thankfully, he didn't call it Voltron. <laughs> jazz music, ah, jazz, because you can't spell pretentious without J double Z. Oh, come on, not all jazz is bad. <laughs> That fruity <laughs> experimental jazz. In a free form jazz. Yeah, but a free form jazz. Yeah, yeah. I remember Glastonbury a few years ago and there was jazz, which was one song which went on for like 20 minutes. That's jazz, dude. What is this? And you say it's jazz. It's jazz. <laughs> <laughs> mm. um, and this is coming from a heavy metal fan. There's nothing wrong with a bit of heavy metal. It's not pretentious. Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner goes on for about four hours, doesn't it? By Iron Maiden. Yeah, yeah, the Rhyme yeah. of the Ancient Mariner sees Izzy steps on a three. Don't want Metallica. They're like, like weeks long for an album. Yeah, well, the thing with Metallica is they're all a bit of pussies. Have you ever seen that? What's the yeah, film called? The Monster kind of Unleashed? Of, some kind of monster. Yeah. God, they're wimps. Is that, well, I have to go home. I have to go to therapy now. And you can't play without me. Oh, God. Do you know? They yeah. did a similar documentary about Take That, yeah. the boy band. Take That were more rock and roll than Metallica. That's sad. <laughs> that is a sad state of affairs when take that and yeah. knocking off groupies in the tour bus. <laughs> and Mark Owen was complaining about it because he couldn't get to sleep. <laughs> and Metallica, oh, we've got to go to, to we've got to go to therapy now and drink mineral water. My mum wants me home for tea and uh, <laughs> I have to take my football with me. I just thought it was a very sad God state of affairs. Laws. Leave us the football, we'll drop it off like, no, my mum won't let me. <laughs> we booked all this studio time and he's going home at five. <laughs> God damn. Motorcycle helmets. Helmets laws in the US did not become commonplace until the 90s, so Peter and MJ are alright in that respect. Ah, but mm-hmm. in the sliding scale that is the Marvel timeline, wouldn't would Spider-Man the Blue now be the early 2000s? Mm. It would, wouldn't it? It might, yeah. Mm. Hammer Studios, I too would love to see Andrew in a Hammer Horror movie. <laughs> I'm sure he would enjoy the job so long as he was cast opposite one of Hammer's bevy of chesty blonde starlets costumed in a plunging Victorian blouse. Hubba hubba. Where can I go after that comment but sign off, Luke? I, I know where I would go after that comment, yes. <laughs> oh, Hammer movies. Uh, P.S. coming soon, Venom, Blue, Black, Sort of Inky. <laughs> I know I'd buy it. <laughs> you know it <laughs> thank you Luke oh, you and your lovely wife for getting some sleep um, as an aside I have dressed up as a hammer horror woman a woman yes <laughs> at Universal Studios when we first went in 1992 I think it was me and all my mates went to Florida didn't we Michael knows this story but he's indulging me do I yeah we were in the queue for at that point it was the psycho show right and I must have done something that drew attention to myself because I'm in no way an inveterate show off oh no, no and the lady came to me and said come here and I was like oh crap what have I done and she said no no we want you to be in the show and I got to play Norman Bates okay. I got to dress up as mum in right. the long dress and the little round spectacles and stuff and stab the girl in the shower <laughs> it was awesome None of my friends took a picture. Thanks, dudes. <laughs> so I only have my memory yeah, of yeah. that event. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much, Luke. That was much appreciated as ever. Our next email is from Christopher Keith, as we're still under the 30 minutes. Spider-Man Blue are a little ripping on Peter Parker. Greetings, Leylands. Greetings, Christopher. 
Well, this email will be decidedly less volatile. Or is there no way that Jeff Loeb would ever write a stealing pie like the final issues of Civil War? No! Moratorium on Civil War! <laughs> we are talking about it no more. I am a Loeb fan. I guess Superman for All Seasons was just perfect. Why is that not an absolute? For tomorrow is an absolute! Superman for All Seasons isn't. In what world does that make sense? Even with this, there's a new film out, for God's sake. In, they have not released For All Seasons as an absolute. In the Didio-verse. Yeah, because Loeb now works for Marvel, so he's off limits, is he? If yeah. Jeff Johns had written it, <laughs> it'd be an absolute, wouldn't it? It would. And an animated movie. Yeah. <laughs> and an animated movie. Yeah. Um, sorry, Chris, I, I got on a rant there, didn't I? I enjoyed Long Halloween and Dark Victory Hush, and of course all his Marvel Silver Age stories. I nearly need to go back and reread Daredevil Yellow and Hulk Grey after listening to you guys talk about them. I remember just enjoying them. Were they the greatest books of those characters? Nah, but they were certainly fun, and the Tim Sale art was just timeless. On to other Spider-Man Blue comments. One, Gwen. I really enjoyed the reimagining, I guess you would call it a reimagining, of the first appearances of Gwen. I've always found her meh. Yeah, she's blonde, but what else? What have you got to say or do, Gwen? Usually nothing. In this story, she had character, she had heart. Had Stan been able to write women like this portrayal, then I think that Conway's killing of her would have hit me harder. As it was written, however, I didn't have any emotional attachment to the character, so it felt like shock value. Number two, Mary Jane. Boobs. That's it. That's concise. It is, yeah. Okay, I've said it before, but I've always found Mary Jane to be vapid and uninteresting. And then suddenly, in the late 90s, she becomes a likeable mommy to be. Yes, I'm reading right around Onslaught right now, and she's tolerable. Prior to that point, she was, in order, A, a flake, B, a flake, C, a bitch, D, a flake, and E, a shoulder to cry on, F, a bitch, and then G, a smoker. Yeah, that covers it. In this book, I really got that old Ramita feel, so I hated her. Love the artistic portrayal, but I just don't like the character. Three, Peter. You know, I've been rereading my entire Spider-Man collection for the last year and up to the big reveal of Norman Osborn. Going back and rereading this book made me nostalgically remember that science and nerd way that Pete used to be portrayed, the budding student who had a future. I thought about Pete and, well, there's no easy way to put it. He's kind of a loser. Apparently Uncle Ben's words of advice only apply to Spider-Man, not Peter. At 15 he built web shooters and web fluid and has really done nothing since. Any of his scientific de endeavours have been performed solely for his superhero endeavours. Not once has he tried to do anything with all these crazy one-off inventions. I get that in 50 years he couldn't find a way to make a permanent adhesive, whatever, but couldn't he have done something with these inventions? He doesn't have to go the, down the Tony Stark route and make cruise missiles, but you, could you honestly try to tell me that all of these devices he's built are potions that he's made for the lizard, Doc Ock, the vulture, etc., have no medical applications? Nonsense. The Peter I'm reading right now, 1996 or 97, left a job as a scientist in Portland to yet again be a photographer, a career that he admittedly has half-assed for years because he couldn't mount an automatic camera as Spider-Man. Remember the issues where Black Cat was taking pictures for Pete and suddenly he had talent? Let me repeat, he left his job in his chosen field with a child to indulge in his hobby. That, my friends, is a deadbeat. And I just finished the boot where he was bumped down to freelance photographer. Again in the newspaper industry, which, as we all know, is a booming business. His character growth since this blue era is non-existent. With great power meant his mind. He's not using it at all, unless you call finding new ways to make web fluid out of tuna fish and club soda. Not helping the world, Pete. Get a job, hippie. <laughs> um, They've changed that now. Yeah, well, under the, the brand new day where he's working at Horizons big and Big Time and stuff, yeah, they have altered that. See, the pro this is the problem that I have articulated many times. By aging Peter Parker, they have ruined the core essence of the character. 
if you're going to age him, do it properly. Yeah. Have him grow up, have him get a job, have him become Tony Stark, and have an end point for the strip where he retires. Or what I've said before, Clone Saga was flawed, but it was a perfect ending for Peter. Yeah. The ultimate responsibility is taking care of your family. And he did. He packed him being Spider-Man, and he took his pregnant wife away from it all. And if that had been the end of Peter Parker, I could have lived with it. I wasn't the biggest Ben Riley fan in the world. I didn't hate him. Mm. But there were just too many problems with him being Spider-Man. But for Peter Parker, that was a perfect ending. And they should have left it alone. So you either just have him be in high school constantly, which lots of people whine at, and I don't understand. Charlie Brown's never grown up. Nobody's complained about that. (laughs) The Simpsons don't grow up. Nobody's complained about that. Mm-hmm. Or you do it properly. You don't half-ass him growing older. And you do have him working for Tony Stark or setting up his own business or working with Reed Richards yeah. or something. This is one of the things Horizon Labs has done properly. Peter Parker is using his scientific ability. But they didn't have to get rid of the marriage to tell this story. No. That's, that's the main thing. It doesn't make sense to get rid of the marriage and then advance the story. But... You know, whatever, whatever. It's Marvel's character, they can do what they want with it. Um, I really can't write much more because I just adore this book, continues Chris. I'm seriously biased. This time period was reprinted in Marvel Tales back in the mid-80s when I first got into Spider-Man, and they recolored them so the bright costume just jumped off the page. Loeb and Sale did an excellent decision to choose this era as opposed to Ditko. Whilst the Lee Ditko era is iconic, I've always found it very dark and almost hopeless. Romita's art has been criticised for being too much like a romance comic, but I feel the boot needed to lighten up after Ditko. Sale totally pays tribute to the past, and I can't stop looking at these pages. It needs to be a yearly re-read, re-read category for me. Thank you, gentlemen. It is off to finish listening to Marvel Now Part 1. Excellent show as always, and I thank you very much for the effort of putting out the show every week. Thank you very much, Chris. We appreciate that. P.S. I can't thank you, or more appropriately, the new website, for putting the rest of the old episodes on the feed. I'm up to the relaunch and can't wait to catch up. Oh, well, let us know what you think of the old ones. Uh, yeah, and if you've not checked out the new Two True Freaks website, go over there. It's brilliantly designed. Very well designed. I was very impressed with it. Very well done. Our final email tonight, yeah, we'll squeeze it in, is Kenneth Laster, back from email death. Hey, Leyland folk. Hey, Kenneth. Hey, guys, I know I haven't emailed in a while. I was trying to live a less negative and cynical life when it comes to comics, and analysing them is not a great help with that. So, well, don't listen to the Civil War shows. Yeah, yeah. Skip them. Listen to Spider-Man Bloat. Unless because you've already listened to them at this point. In which case, just forget them. Yeah. Use one of them Men in Black things. Or go to Professor X and just have him mind wipe you for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, because he's a good guy. Because he's a good guy and all, yeah. Um... So I gave up on some of the podcasts I listened to. I came back, though, because, well, I missed you guys. And it's easier to download due to the new format, as mentioned on Fantastic Cast. Well, thank you. We've missed you too, Kenneth. Mm-hmm. Also, when I was stabbed by the guilt knife when Michael laid out a little rap for me. Except my E-hug. <laughs> did, did I stab someone in the back? No, no, no. He's saying he, he was stabbed by the guilt knife right. when you did the little rap for Kenneth. Oh, okay. So that's nice. Uh, now I'm back I have points I'd like to address not a lot though I have to go against Andy's views against Bendis mainly because he gave me great tips on exactly what I was asking on Tumblr which is really cool and something to tell everyone also Ultimate Spider-Man is really cool and as a black teenager I relate to Miles which is good Uh, two points the yes alright Bill Bendis may be a lovely man this is the point I try and make every week the person may be the lovely. The person may be lovely. I'm not the biggest fan of his work. That's not to see Bendis is one of those weird ones. There's a lot of his stuff I have enjoyed. Yeah. There's a lot of his stuff where his ticks as a writer just bug me. But the thing with Bendis is I just don't read his stuff if I'm not enjoying it. Mm. It's that simple. 
And it's kind of easy to ignore Mark Miller's stuff now as well, because he's not writing anything that I read. You've still not read Scarlet yet, have you? I've still not read Scarlet yet, no. And Jupiter's Children was in the 50p bins last week. Was it? Yeah. Sweet, should we get it? I should have bought it, shouldn't I? Yeah. I don't know why. I didn't want it, so I put it back. Even for 50p, <laughs> I didn't want that crap. Uh, it may be good. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I, I judged the didn't I? Anyway. Um, name on it, just uh... Yeah, 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 yeah. And if you relate to Miles Morales, that's good. Um, I've never read any Miles Morales. I ditched Ultimate Spider-Man after Bagley left. Yeah. I never, never we, went back. We still read it for a while, up until Ultimatum, when he killed off Peter. Did we? We just gave up on it, though. Right. I don't remember reading it after Bagley. We, well, so. No, no, we do, because we have all of it when they did the horrible storyline, which tied into the game. Right. And I the, don't remember any of with this. With different artists. He de- then did Ultimatum where Peter Park was killed in the New York flood. Yeah. Then he came back and then he restarted it in uh, Ultimate Comics right. Spider-Man, which you have the first trade paperback on that shelf. Which I mustn't have ever read. No. And neither <laughs> have I. Right, okay, fair enough. So, third, we've just never read Miles Morales. I'm sure he's lovely. Also, an emailer called out John Constantine being part of the Trinity War. I see that as most of the characters are out of place. Heck, all of the Justice League teams are out of place in a story sense. The war is most likely supposed to be the Phantom Stranger, Pandora, and the question over Pandora's box. When looking at that, the Justice League is just protecting people. The JLA are probably pawns of Amanda Waller and Justice League Dark, where the cult and magic is their thing. Constantine is a part of the Justice League Dark, which when you look at isn't a team full of the archetypical superhero in cape and tights. So when that team gets caught up in the JL guff, most of them don't technically belong. Uh, yeah, but in the story, Justice League Dark is um, Steve Trevor's bitch at the moment. Are they? Yeah. Because he's not monitoring the Justice League anymore, is he? And he's doing the Justice League of America right. whilst also telling the Justice League Dark what to do. Because the new 52 relaunch was supposed to streamline and, and simplify everything. John Constantine absolutely hates him and hates the name Justice League Dark. Why is he even in the Justice League Dark? Because the first story arc when he just stumbles into it and then Steve Sheriff's like, aha, you must work for us now. And John's like, oh, sod it. And he doesn't say, screw you. Yeah. He shifts him but Steve, the bird and leave. But John Constantine is a uh, criminal. So? Uh, and Steve Trevor can arrest him. Not if he's not in America. Well, he lives in America now. Of course he does. How stupid of me. He goes back to London in one of the new issues, actually. And does he stay there? He, he doesn't. He comes back because right. London's haunted. Okay. And tries to kill him. Yeah. Constantine is it has has um, gotten bet- better since issue one. That's like saying my poo smells better than your poo. They're both That's, still poo. The thing, yeah, it's it's it's, <laughs> it's decently readable. It's not Constantine. Yeah. Is it like what I'm like with the new Star Trek? It's no. alright if you're in the right mood, but it ain't Star Trek. Yeah, I guess. Right. Okay, fair enough. It's still readable. Uh, I'm really digging listening to the episodes. Thank you, Kenneth. Some of the criticisms are pretty harsh. We're not that harsh. I hate Miller. Stories of crap. Civil War's poo. Oh. We're a little bit harsh. <laughs> <laughs> Then again, I try to be nice to everything. So do we. <laughs> it's just hard sometimes. It's just difficult sometimes when something's crap. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Kenneth Laster. Thank you, Kenneth. We're glad you're back. We miss you. Stay. Mm-hmm. Sit a spell. We're not, we've not been negative about Marvel now. Perhaps surprisingly. Yeah. We've not been harsh. No. Much. Yeah. <laughs> 
Seriously, thank you for coming back, Kenneth. We appreciate it. Thank you for emailing in. Thank you, everybody, that emailed in tonight. I went over 30 minutes. Sorry. So sue me. Um, I'll plug somebody's show. I'm sure it'll be lovely. And we'll be right back with this week's Marvel Now picks. Superior Spider-Man. There goes Superior Spider-Man. No, no. My name is Steve Lacey, and I'm a podcaster. The randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me. Listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20-minute long box. The 20-Minute Long Box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20-Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. And we're back! And so... To the final book in How Soon Is Marvel Now Season. And of course, no look at the Marvel Universe would be complete without dropping in on your friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man. Who is the son and the heir of the creator of Marvel who is particularly vulgar. (laughs) He's the son and heir. (laughs) Of a comic that is particularly (laughs) vulgar. (laughs) Of Stan Lee in particular. So shut your mouth, Straczynski. How can you say the marriage never should have happened anyway? Because <laughs> Pete is human and, and he needs, needs to be loved, loved just like everybody, everybody else does. <laughs> I do apologise for people that don't like the Smiths. Perhaps the biggest surprise of the Now Initiative was that Spider-Man would be getting a new number one at all. After all, Spidey was renumbered back in January 1999 to almost universal condemnation. The boot was rejoined back into its original numbering with issue 500 in December 2003, and it seemed that Marvel wouldn't be so stupid as to cancel Amazing Spider-Man and relaunch it again, would they? Well, no, they wouldn't. Yes, Amazing Spider-Man came to an end with issue 700 in February 2013, but it would not be replaced by another volume of Amazing Spider-Man. For the first time since the dawn of the Marvel Age of Comics, there would be no Amazing Spider-Man. Rather, this would be the dawn of the Superior Spider-Man. The seeds of Superior had been planted by writer Dan Slott for nearly 100 issues. Since the dawn of the big-time story arc, Peter Parker has had a life to die for. Fired from the Daily Bugle for doctoring news photos, ironically a photo that exonerated J. Jonah Jameson of a crime he didn't commit, Peter landed a job at Horizon Labs, where he'd been part of a think tank of highly intelligent employees that are essentially given carte blanche to work when they want, as long as they come up with some new gadget or world-altering device every quarter. Peter is also young, free and single, and has had an off-again, on-again relationship with Carly Cooper, and in Amazing Spider-Man 600, Mary Jane Watson showed back up in his life as his Aunt May's married to J. Jonah Jameson's father, J. J. Jameson. Hmm. 
Also in issue 600, Spider-Man teamed up with the Human Torch to quash Dr. Octopus's latest scheme. After learning that he has no more than 18 months left to live due to the amount of damage his body has taken over the years, primarily at the fists of Spider-Man, Octavius plotted to take over New York, ostensibly to do some good. To prevent this, Spider-Man used a helmet of Octavius's design to wipe out the brainwave patterns that were being used to control numerous different Octobots around town by replacing them with his own brainwaves. After patting himself on the back for his ingenuity, Spider-Man used the helmet again in the storyline Spider Island, Ends of the Earth, and built the helmet's technology into one of the many new suits he had designed whilst working at Horizon Labs. This was a mistake. Over time, Dr. Octopus has essentially been given clear access to Spider-Man's brainwave patterns. Now, Ox's body is withered and dying and is essentially kept alive only by machines. It's at this point he launches his master plan. In Amazing Spider-Man 698, Peter Parker wakes up in the dying body of Otto Octavius, and Otto has command of the body of Peter Parker. Both have access to the other's memories, but for all intents and purposes, the personalities of both have swapped bodies. Reliving the events of the past few days, Peter realised he was stabbed by Octobots whilst in confrontation with the Hobgoblin, who had managed to make Spider-Man ignore his spider sense. The Octobot rewrote Peter's brainwave patterns with Octavius and vice versa, leaving Dr. Octopus to leave his broken body behind and take control as Spider-Man. Peter tries to fight back, and in Amazing Spider-Man 700 tries everything to reunite his brainwaves and body. Nothing works, and as Peter, unable to get Oct's broken body to function any further, passes away, he forces Octavius to see his life as it passes before his eyes, despite Oct's objections. Once again, this new Peter Parker learns that with great power comes great responsibility. But from this day forth, he will be a better Spider-Man. A superior Spider-Man. Predictably, fandom went wild, and not in a good way. Steve Wacker, the editor, was his usual unrepentant self and pointed that if everybody who said they were dropping the book had dropped the book, then it wouldn't sell anything at all. Of course, the difference between the vocal minority that is the internet and actual sales ranked Superior Spider-Man as one of Now's biggest successes, with issue 10 still holding its own and ranking number one for the week of release. Of course, as we discovered with Civil War, sales don't actually mean the book is any good, and the only way to ascertain that is to read the damn thing. Superior Spider-Man 1 came out on January 19th, 2013. The cover seems like a reworking of that god-awful Joe Quesada poster that became really famous despite featuring Spider-Man with a wrist that seems to be able to dislocate. This version by Ryan Stegman is more anatomically correct than the Quesada version, but the basic pose is the same. Spider-Man crawls up a wall towards the reader with spider webs in the foreground and background. There's a new logo that looks like a rather blocky PlayStation 1 kind of thing, and even though recent comics have done away with word balloons, there still seems to be an awful lot of clutter to the cover, with logos, issue numbers, Marvel Now logos, credits, and a large Marvel Now banner across the bottom, just in case the reader had missed the point, all in large red friendly letters. There's also the barcode and the uh, app advert and the plug for the free digital copy. It's an attractive cover, but yeah, busy. What do you think? It's a pretty neat, iconic cover. It's alright, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of fresh. Although, uh, you know what that logo actually looks like? What? The Silent Hill logo. It does a bit, doesn't it? All webby and yeah. stuck together. Like it should be flashy and going... Yeah. That kind of thing. Uh, there are a few oh. variant covers, but I didn't look them up. Well, they're inside the issue, aren't they? Are they? What? Some of them are, yeah. At the back? No, like halfway through it. Maybe not halfway through it. Oh yeah, Superior Spider-Man variant gallery. Humberto Ramos and Edgar Delgado did one where Spider-Man looks like he's had his torso in a rack. 
doesn't it? Yeah. God, that's awful. Uh, Joe Quazada, Danny Mickey and Richard Isanov did one that's just a close-up of Spider-Man squatting as if he's taking a dump. Uh, there's a lovely little Scotty Young one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Spider-Man fringing in front of the moon. I love Scotty Young stuff. Yeah. That's adorable. Uh, Giuseppe Caminacoli did one that's Spider-Man crouching over a bunch of bodies in an alleyway, which like looks alright. Yeah. Uh, there's an Ed McGuinness pencils variant, which looks quite good. Yeah. And apparently there was also available a J. Scott Campbell Midtown Comics variant and a Mike Diotto Hastings variant and limited edition Addy Granov variant, which are not pictured. Yeah. Brilliant. Yes. You know what problems with that cover, though? What? The Stegman one. If you look at his fingers, it looks like he snapped him on a 90 degree. Well, that's, have you ever seen the Quizada one? Probably. The, where his, his wrist's, like, bent right back and then his hand's that way, and you're like, what? At least McFarlane's ridiculous poses looked vaguely credible. <laughs> but, anyway, whatever. Uh, unusually for now, there wasn't really a large creative shake-up for this relaunch. There was a new artist, but the artists would change regularly over the first dozen or so issues anyway, as they had in the last days of Amazing. But Dan Slott, the regular Amazing Spider-Man scribe, would continue to write Superior. Hero or Menace was written by Dan Slott, with art by Ryan Stegman and Edgar Delgado. Chris Eliopoulos lettered, and as usual for Marvel, 448 different people did the editing. <laughs> well, Steve Wacker is the one who's mainly credited. The all-new Sinister Six, consisting of the Shocker, Speed Demon, Boomerang, the Living Brain, the Beetle, and Big Wheel. It's not Big Wheel. I know I'll get into that later, so, but he's been called a different name now, isn't he? Overdrive. Overdrive, yeah. Are robbing the science building on 11th and Greenwich. The all-new Spider-Man, still Otto Octavius's brainwaves in Peter Parker's body, is offended by this when the news breaks and he makes the scene. He's doing okay, but when he's pummeled about the head multiple times by Speed Demon, Spider-Ock, or Spock, as I believe some people call him, decides enough is enough and bails. He cannot prevent himself hurling his body in front of a police van who is about to become one with an exploding boomerang, saving the cop's life but leaving himself open for boomerang to press the attack. A compression boomerang locks around Spider-Ock's neck, and in retaliation, Spider-Ock slashes boomerang's chest with the millions of tiny claws that enable him to crawl walls. Horrified, boomerang calls for a retreat, as the Sinister Six have what they wanted, and Spider-Ock asks a grateful NYPD for the living brain to be delivered to Horizon Labs. Upon its arrival, Otto Pete starts working on analysing it for everything it knows about the Sinister Six. Max Modell, the chief of Horizon Labs, interrupts, pointing out that all the aid Peter provides Spider-Man is invaluable, but could be considered arms-making. Otto Pete offers Modell a list of revolutionary peaceful applications he's currently working on, shutting Modell up as he takes a call from MJ, asking him out on a date. Otto Peter enjoys the view, particularly MJ's boobs, so Chris Keith will like that then, and, but zones out on her incessant prattle, instead listening in to what the Sinister Six are planning. When he scratched Boomerang earlier, see, he injected him with nano-tracers, and now can hear everything they say. The next day, the Sinister Six hit their target, Horizon Labs. Oh, convenient. They need an atmospheric condenser for reasons of plot, and are in and out, stealing the MacGuffin quickly and efficiently. Spider-Ock has come over all Batman, however, and stacked the deck in his favour, with a webbed street and frictionless surfaces and power dampness. The press arrive, informed by Otto Pete earlier, and Spider-Ock nearly beats Boomerang to death before being stopped by the ghostly image of Peter Parker. Ooh. Rent a ghost. 
The obligatory catch-up page appears on page five, for some reason. It's rather superfluous, as Scott does a pretty good enough job of bringing readers up to speed within the story itself, without it feeling overly expositional. Mm. So how that first page, how it's laid out, that bugs me. The first page, page one proper? Yeah. Why? Well, the main panel is too far up, and the other three panels are too far down, and then you got all that silly credits they have now. Yeah, the... The UPC code at the bottom of the page takes up. Takes up. Oh, yeah, it's. It does, instead of covering the full width of the page, the UPC code. Not the UPC code, all the bump. Yeah. What's it called? It has a proper name. Indicia, I think. Probably. It's only under panel one, and then the three panels that come down the page on page one come right the way to the bottom, leaving a big white space at the top, which you think they would have filled with art. Mm. And the Indicia. It does make the page look a bit odd. I'll give you that. I do like the big Ben Powell, though. Of him standing in front of Otto, Otto Octavius's grave. That'd be a poster. Yeah, it is quite. It's the end of Spider-Man 1, basically. Yeah. Isn't it? Uh, there's already indications here that Spider-Oc is being more proactive in his attempt to keep his eyes on his enemies, with a tap on the police band tipping him off to the Sinister Six's activities. This was played with a little bit in Spider-Man 2, where Peter had a police band in his apartment, but I don't recall him ever doing this for long in the comics. Of course, this being the Sinister Six gives Spider-Oc a personal stake in the proceedings. The Sinister Six were originally Craven the Hunter, Electro, the Vulture, Mysterio and Sandman, and were gathered together by Dr. Octopus to stop Spider-Man in a Amazing Spider-Man Annual 1 in 1964. They lay dormant until they were revived in Amazing Spider-Man 334 in 1990 and have made semi-regular comebacks since then in different configurations. This configuration seems to be largely B-listers, but I reckon all of these, handled well, could be contenders. Well, maybe not Big Wheel or Overdrive. Mm as he's called now. Uh, Speed Demon had a memorable encounter with Spider-Man and the Human Torch back in issue 121 of Marvel Team-Up. Boomerang was handled wonderfully as the merciless killer in Boomerang, the killer that keeps coming back in Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man issue 67. The Shocker and the Beetle have been Spider-Man mainstay since Amazing Spider-Man 46 and 21 respectively, although this Beetle is a girl. The Living Brain's main appearance was in Amazing Spider-Man 8 and he's been largely left on the shelf since then. Overdrive from the Spider-Man Swing Shift one-shot has stolen the Big Wheel technology and upgraded it. Big Wheel, a rather forgettable disco-style villain, first appeared in Amazing Spider-Man 182. Research is your friend. <laughs> didn't use didn't use the internet for any of that. Did you not? I used my handy-dandy uh, official index of the Marvel Universe for Amazing Spider-Man. Okay. A jolly good book. I heartily recommend it. Um, I did like that Slot didn't really treat these guys as B-listers, and in Big Wheel's case, Z-listers, and actually had them be a credible threat. Almost all of the guys had decent stories told about them in the past where they were actually a force to be reckoned with. In cooler, more hip hands, these guys would have been played for laughs and then killed off, but Slot makes them dangerous. Overdrive's still an idiot, though, but given that he was a Slot creation, he can do what he wants with him. What did you think of the opening six pages of Spider-Man vs. the Sinister Six? I thought it was pretty neat. It very, was. Very pre-credit sequence-like. Or very like the opening to Captain America. Yeah, or, or the first scene in a movie. Hmm. Well, this, this is one of the things I thought the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies were missing. I mean, I like the Raimi movies. I, do, I don't even think the third one's as bad as everyone says it is. Yeah. But there are certain things that were botched, like the whole soap opera high school stuff was just glossed over. Yeah. And pre-credit sequences like you say like James Bond movies within dealing with a villain not good enough to carry a movie like yeah. how good would an opening a pre-credit sequence with him just wiping the floor with the shocker have been 
Mm, well, like in the game. Shock was in the first game. Yeah, that kind of thing. Just villains that... And then it goes to 72 hours earlier. Oh, and he wipes him out and you never see him again. Yeah. Just build up his rogues gallery. Because like, over the course of those three films, we've got the Green Goblin, Green Goblin 2, Venom, Sandman and Doctor Octopus, and that was it. Mm. We never even got the much ballyhooed appearance of the Black Cat, did we? Um, who was going to be played by Anne Hathaway. Yeah. Had Sam Raimi done Spider-Man 4, apparently. Fair enough. And Ben Kingsley was going to be the Vulture, I think. Yeah. So so they all had roles in comic book movies lined up, and then Sam Raimi said, I'm not doing Spider-Man 4. Mm. And Tobey Maguire said, I'm not doing Spider-Man 4 without Sam Raimi. And Sony said, it's all right, we'll do a different one without you. <laughs> and that was much better. Uh, I don't think that it was much better. It was, wasn't bad. It was a different tone. Yeah. I mean, the, the cast were good. Yeah. I like the cast. Um... Page six is an absolutely fantastic scene. Spider-Ock dismisses all of the Sinister Six, but as a scientist recognises the beetle as a random element. I hate random elements, he muses. Which is interesting, as the random element that is Spider-Man is what's taking him out time after time. I do like that he says the living brain, archaic, overdrive, pathetic, boomer and shocker, jokes. I don't think the shocker's a joke. And the boomerang was handled like bullseye in that Peter Parker issue. He was killing people with his razor boomerangs. Yeah. He was really a good villain. It's a good issue, that. We have to dig that out and reread it and see if it's still any good. But I remember loving that. Uh, the Living Brain's complaint of why was I programmed with pain receptors was funny. Yeah. Apparently, it's a Simpsons rip-off. Fair enough. Didn't stop it from being funny, though. I, I like the Living Brain. I like, I like his role in later issues. Yeah, where Dr. Octopus reprograms him to be like, like his, his, his Alfred. Yeah. <laughs> I like his little stumpy legs and massive body. It is quite funny. I'd give him full credit if a living brain made me smile. Yeah. Uh, page 7, Spider-Ock being beaten and then deciding to bail out was a great touch. One of the reasons Ock was in such bad condition was the many beatings he's taken over the years at the hands of superheroes generally, but Spider-Man in particular. It's a really good touch that Slot doesn't beat you over the head with. Haha. <laughs> and relies on the reader knowing, although it doesn't really work for people who are only reading this book, as part of Marvel now, Slot does handle it in such a way that the scene plays out well for new readers, but with an extra layer of subtext for followers of the story. Mm-hmm. All right, I thought so. It's going to be interesting to see what you think of that Yeah, in a bit. Uh, page 8, the first indication we get that Spider-Rock is doing things not of his own violation. He changes swing after fleeing to protect an NYPD cop about to be vivisected by a razor rank. There are a couple of things of note about this scene. Firstly, Spider-Ock is confused by what happened and why he did it. And his dialogue is wonderfully Ockian, all arrogance and disdain. Secondly, it shows Spider-Ock adjusting to the situation and thinking on his feet. He slashes Boomerang across the chest and, as we learn later, implants nano-spider traces on him. Which I thought was quite good. I did like Boomerang's reaction to that. What the? Since when does Spider-Man do that? Yeah. Which I thought was quite funny. I like how Spider-Man's changed. Well, he's not changed. He's Dr. Octopus. Spider-Man well, has changed. No. I, I like how it's not... Ah, I must be a good guy, but I do bad guy things. You know, it doesn't... No, it's, it, it doesn't say, shoot you in the head with it. Oh! Uh, so, <laughs> um, he is trying to do almost the right thing here, but isn't he? it's still a different, more brutal Spider-Man. Yeah, ironically one who's much more loved by the public. Yeah. What does that say? Mm. What does that tell you? I like his Peter Parker as well. 
I love the body language yeah in the art by Ryan Stegman he's Peter Parker's much more stiff and haughty like he walks around with his nose in the air like everyone's beneath him mm. it's, it is really really good don't he says to people in the carry in the living brain into his office pages 9 through 11 are the Max Modell scenes there is again some really rather excellent characterisation his argument with Modell is actually well-reasoned, considering it's Dr. Octopus. Modell is concerned Horizon is manufacturing weapons, non-lethal weapons, yes, but still. And Spider-Man and Otto Pete's response is that many of the greatest technological achievements by man were in wartime, and that he's been working on some peaceful applications as well. Otto Pete's ego is such that when Modell compliments him on the achievements, the fact that it's Peter Parker who gets the credit irks Otto, which I really liked. Uh, that was a really nice touch. Octavius's hubris is always what's laid him out in the past, and he's always wanted recognition for what he did achieve. So to have accomplished something this revolutionary, this ingenious, and not be credited for it, is probably worrying on his mind. Mm. Did you like these bits? I did, I liked all of it. I, um, I just liked... His Peter Parker. I like that this was a meaty read as well. This actually felt like a proper comic. Yeah. Not part four of seven. <laughs> Even though it is. A sense part four, yeah. Yeah, well, not part four, but you know what I mean. Um, I'm always against comics using present day slang because I don't think anything dates the book more than stuff like that. Uh, Grady Scraps saying Bogarting is going to date this book six months from now. Okay. Um, six weeks from now, probably. I, I didn't know it was slang, to be honest. Uh, bogarting the living brain. Apparently, bogarting means keeping for yourself. Okay. I don't know where it comes from. Mm. I don't know why, what Humphrey Bogart kept for himself that no one else had. <laughs> Who knows? Mm. Must come from somewhere. Uh, page is 30, but I'm not down with the kids, am I? Apparently, and, neither am I, but I don't know what it meant. And to be honest, don't care. <laughs> page 13, 14, the MJ Peter date scene receives some criticism online, but I kind of think the sexism of the sexism, sorry, of the scene was the point of the scene. Yeah. Otto Pete is paying no attention to what MJ is saying, merely checking out her rack. Until Which I thought was hilarious. It was hilarious that he likes the view. Yeah. And it's a close-up of Mary Jane's that, boobs. His, his um thought bubbles are over the uh, or over uh, what she's yeah. saying he's just completely ignoring what she's talking about until she starts talking about something he's interested in mm. which I thought was really quite interesting it underscores Otto's character and his opinion of women perfectly I thought they are objects to be admired and used but ultimately of no importance there's a great subtext to that and I think it's handled really well it's mm. not like he was ogling MJ in her underwear or anything we yeah. saw much worse than that when McFarlane was drawing the book, <laughs> didn't we? Uh, I'm pretty sure most men, even enlightened ones such as us, <laughs> are uh, still check out women, you know, when they've got a decent... Mm. Um, <laughs> I mean, we don't look at them as objects in any way whatsoever. <clears throat> There's also a nice <laughs> nod to Peter being a non-drinker. Yeah. With few exceptions. Because mm. Mary Jane says, you're drinking? That's never good. No, I think last time he shagged something, didn't he? In a scene that a lot of people talked at as well. Uh, pages 16 through 22 are the final action sequence for the story. It's a neat scene with Spider-Ock avoiding direct confrontation where possible and making it all go his way by careful planning. On the one hand, it does show a certain Batman level of planning and has Spider-Ock using his brains. On the other, it definitely shows Spider-Ock stacking the deck in his favour and being rather cowardly when it comes to the battle scenes. 
Boomerang is the last man standing, and instead of taking him out easily, Spider-Ock pummels him, and would have killed him before the assembled press. This plays really nicely into two aspects of Ock's personality. He's always wanted credit for his actions. By informing the press in advance, they get to see him take down the Sinister Six, appeasing his ego. But it also validates Dr. Octopus. All of these years he was beaten by Spider-Man, and no one ever noticed his accomplishments. But here, the entire world gets to see what he's done. It's very similar in concept to Bruce Banner in The Indestructible Hulk, who now wants to get on with his life as a scientist instead of a monster. And then on page 22, the ghostly image of Peter Parker stays Doc's hand and prevents him from killing somebody. Did you look at the ER stuff for this? No. Uh, Dan Slott says in one of the ER things that the ghostly Peter Parker was added later. Yeah. He wanted to kill Peter in Amazing Spider-Man 700. Right. And the brain trust at the Spider-Man meeting said no no there's no hope though so they created Ghostly Pete yeah Um, and it's only a couple of issues down the line he actually got to tell the story he wanted to tell in Amazing Spider-Man 700 yeah so my thing with Superior Spider-Man which I did like about it was that just like how DC had cancelled Action Comics and Detective Comics Marvel is showing that they're serious with this by cancelling Amazing Spider-Man so yeah, the only thing wrong with that is Marvel cancelled Amazing Spider-Man before. Yeah. <laughs> but then having it with Spirit Spider-Man, like, yeah, it's a new title and all that. But then it is, like, the back door. Yeah. If anything goes wrong, which kind of does lessen the effect. Yeah, well, he, he counters that later on. Well, yeah, it does make a interesting a subplot. A little bit of sense. Yeah, I, I thought it was really good. I thought it was a pretty good first issue. A uh, decent setup for the now storyline. Many people hazarded a guess that this ghostly Peter was slot, essentially handing the audience the keys to how this would all play out in advance, but it wouldn't be that simple. As a new issue, one, this works as part of the ongoing narrative, but as a new comic with no baggage, it both fails and succeeds. In many ways, this isn't the first issue of a new Spider-Man comic. And it features a Spider-Man that will be unknown to the film audiences and the viewers of the Spider-Man cartoon on Disney XD. And that may be to its detriment. Taken on its own merits, however, I felt this worked admirably. The main adversary of the issue is taken care of. The setup for how the book will proceed is handled well. And the art and dialogue are crisp and entertaining. Personally, I think this is going to be similar to Death of Superman rather than a forever and always change. And it will be interesting to see if Amazing Spider-Man comes back when all this shakes out. But for now... I'm suitably interested to keep checking this out. Mm-hmm. Did you think it worked as a number one? Like, no? No. Why not? Because, yes, it explains everything that happens, but it's still a continuation of what we've had before. So it's do you not think start, this is Marvel Now's ethos? Um, I don't know, but it's a new start, yeah. Mm. It's a new number one, but it's a new number one for... People who were already reading yeah. Amazing. Well, not even that. But it's not a new one for people who already read Amazing. Mm. It's not a new, a new number one for any of the characters in there because they're all still dealing with the events from Amazing Spider-Man. Mm. It's not a new number one for anyone who hasn't been reading it because they, well, they would understand but not understand as much. Right. So it's still a continuation of the other story. Yes, it's a continuation of the story. Do you think? Had we read that without reading Amazing Spider-Man, because let's be fair, if we slagged off Uncanny Avengers for this, mm-hmm. we've got to be fair here. Do you think that stands alone if we've not read Amazing Spider-Man? Which I know is difficult because we, we have read Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. I, 
don't think so, really. Did you not? No. Would it have engaged you more than Uncanny Avengers did, though? Even though you didn't know fully what was going on, uh, I think you would have been much more inclined to read the second issue of this yeah. than Uncanny Avengers. Well, I'd have enjoyed this more, because A, it's... <clears throat> it's Spider-Man. Well, it's a story on its own. Yeah. And B... But I it is, isn't it? Yeah. I don't want to slag off Uncanny Avengers again, but this was fun to read. Yeah, you see, you didn't like Uncanny Avengers. I mean, I almost picked up issues 2, 3, and 4 of Uncanny Avengers at the comic show last week, because, again, they were in the 50, 75p bins. Yeah. And I almost bought them to so see... If we'd stuck with Uncanny Avengers, we would have picked up. That's, that's what I, I almost bought them for cheap, just to see if it did get better. Yeah, and we've read Avengers vs. X-Men now. Yeah, yeah. But that first issue on its own just wasn't engaging and fun enough to want to read. No. Whereas all the others, even though there has been some elements of continuity like in Fantastic Four it was still stood on its own well enough for you to want to read the next issue and not feel that you had to read the last issues Mm. there was a couple of things in Fantastic Four that we both said well what's that and where's that come from but it didn't matter but the thing with Spider-Man is it stands on its own yeah but it doesn't at the same time there's things with it but it was still more fun than Uncanny Avengers number one yeah and that's what I want in a comic right yeah, okay, fair enough, I'll go with that. See, it was one of the things I did muse about. It is hard to... Uncanny Avengers, it was easy to say that did not work because we hadn't read anything that led up to it yeah, at that point. because we are reading this. But we've been reading Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. So it was harder with this one to judge it. Um, but what was one of the funny ways you can read into that is Dr. Octopus is like the readers. I suppose like so, the yeah. the email we had before saying that why didn't Peter use his scientific abilities... Yeah. That's Dr. Octopus saying, why didn't he do it? I'm yeah. going to do it. Well, essentially, Dr. Octopus is now doing all the stuff that people have slagged Peter off for. Yeah. Not using his, um, his intelligence to do something. Mm. Spider-Man now is using Horizon Labs to make stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, very I, interesting. I, to be honest, I, I'm kind of... I think I might prefer Dr. Octopus to Peter Parker as Peter Parker. Wow. Did you prefer Azrael to Batman? Because ultimately, I, I think that's all this is. This is Nightfall. Yeah. Uh, but no, I I I, prefer, I think I prefer Doctor Octopus Peter Parker, despite the the, the odd fact that Ock is a bit of a. T- well, that and there's the odd awkward moments. Like, is it issue two or three where he looks back into Peter's memories? Yeah. Yeah, but there's that icky bit in one of the issues of Amazing where Peter looks into Ock's memories and remembers him marrying Aunt May. Yeah. And the wedding night. <laughs> or the night before or whatever and that was just a all those tentacles made it so that was just a little bit gross Mr. Slot yeah I'm sorry I don't want to know about old person sex <laughs> in a Spider-Man comic <laughs> maybe in Saga it'd be perfectly okay and I'd be down with it we've had all types of sex in Saga yeah and that's perfectly okay because yeah. Saga's a mature reader's book is Spider-Man a mature reader's book? No. In, not that mature. Well, in some cases. <laughs> yeah, but it deals with heavy themes, but it's always dealt with them in a way that killed children can read it. But and Slot's that... argument for that was if a child read that, their mind wouldn't instantly go to that's what he was talking about. Yeah. But there is an argument to be said that was the scene even really necessary? Why does he not just remember him kissing Aunt May before the wedding? That would have been just as gross yeah. for him. Well, about the one in Superior, um, I liked it as part of what the character would do. 
What, him checking out uh, Murray Jean's boobs? Yeah, well, not that, but the memory itself, him going back into the memories. That, right. I think I liked that as part of what the character would do. It's just, it is kind of awkward for the reader. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'll go with that. The story continued through Superior Spider-Man 2 through 8. Otto Pete tried to get close to Murray Jane, but was thwarted by her wishing to take it slow. Something Murray Jane's never been accused of before. And Otto Pete eventually ends their relationship for their own good after she was caught in the crossfire of yet another supervillain battle. Despite a few lapses, Spider-Ock managed to follow the path of righteousness until an encounter with mass murderer Massacre led to the death of many innocents, including long-time supporting cast member Dr. Ashley Kafka, and Spider-Man executed him. Despite what you may think, this move was greeted with almost unanimous praise by Murray Jonah Jameson and the press, with only the Avengers concerned about Spider-Man's actions. In his private life, Otto Pete is indignant that Peter never completed his doctorate and re-enrolls at ESU to complete his studies and reprograms the living brain to be his butler. However, an encounter with Screwball and the Jester changes everything. The duo are two-bit criminals humiliating famous people and posting the video on the internet where a phishing program then robs them of their passwords and online data. After humiliating Spider-Man with balloons filled with paint, Spider-Ock snaps, almost killing the Jester. Again. The Avengers finally take action and analyse Spider-Ock where they determine he is not a Skrull, but let him go because killing somebody in cold blood is no longer a crime, apparently. But Spider-Ock spots something in the brainwave patterns. Some recent anomalies, such as saving the cop in issue one, and the feeling that somebody was stopping him doing certain things coalesce as Ock realises there is still some small vestige of Peter Parker trying to break through. Armed with this knowledge, he programs the living brain to perform a Parkerectomy. Continuing the story, Superior Spider-Man number 9 came out on May 1st, 2013. The cover is simply wonderful, an example of the kind of experimental, bravely artistic covers Marvel have been trying out lately, and quite reminiscent of the kind of stuff Ed McGuinness was doing back in the day, and even possessing a little bit of Frank Miller and Will Eisner. We are looking down upon Spider-Man. And the logo for the comic is depicted as if it is Spider-Man's brain, somehow transparent through the mask. At the top, a shadowy Dr. Octopus, his tentacles flailing madly, and down near his left eye, hidden in between brain matter, a young Peter Parker. Truly excellent, as it's not only eye-catching and attention-grabbing, but it does fairly represent what the issue is about. It was by Marcus Martin and Ryan Stegman. What is your opinion of the cover to Superior Spider-Man number nine, I really like it. It's it's, it's great, isn't it? Marcus Martin's edgy style that I quite like. Marcus Martin is rapidly becoming really, really good, isn't he? Well, he always has been, really. When he first started doing the two-page backups with um, Stanley, yeah, that little cartoony stuff he was doing at the yeah. back of Spider-Man <laughs> that they then published as one twenty-two-page comic, didn't they? Mm. Yeah, because his work on Daredevil was just fantastic. Yeah, with Matt Wade. Why did he? Has he gone off to do some creator-owned thing? He's doing thing. The Brain Cave Arm thing, on, yeah. right? Okay. Again, I need to read that. I was slightly disappointed, to be honest, to see that he didn't do the interiors to this. Yeah, well, originally I thought it was Ryan Stegman. Yeah. And it was only afterwards I was like, no, it, it looks more like Marcus Martin, and then I was quite pleased to find that it was Marcus Martin. So it's like, it's not that my eyes are, are failing me. 
Um, the story for this one, with the living brain as his surgeon, Otto Pete straps himself into the operating chair and explains that Peter Parker's brainwave patterns are existing simultaneously, but underneath Otto Octavius's. As he tries to start the operation, Peter valiantly attempts to fight back, but Otto Pete orders the living brain to hold down the arm that is under Parker control. In the battlefield of the mind, Peter holds court as the bugle and other memories start to crumble. As he rebuilds his shattered memories, Otto realises he will have to meet Peter on the battleground. Appearing within Peter's portion of the brain in his own body, Peter conjures up the memories of his friends and family in an effort to destroy Otto and take back control. But Otto retaliates by dredging up all of Peter's fears and doubts in the form of Spider-Man's rogues gallery, and as Otto systematically destroys Peter's family and friends, he simultaneously destroys more and more of Peter Parker. Peter changes into Spider-Man and Otto runs. He defeats Dr. Octopus as he has before and tells Ock that if he has learned anything then now is the time to demonstrate it. Give Parker back his body and be a true hero. Otto believes he is far worthier of being Spider-Man, of being a far superior Spider-Man than Peter ever was, and gets Peter to reveal that when he tried to stop Otto from saving the little girl in issue 8, that it was because Peter was afraid Otto would spot him. Otto claims he doesn't deserve to be Spider-Man, and Otto's actions since becoming him will attest to this. Slowly, Otto enforces his will, destroying the memories in Peter's head, eventually removing Peter Parker completely. Otto Pete wakes back up in the operating chair, finally free of all traces of Peter Benjamin Parker. Page one. Um, I do have to say, this recap page is terrible. Yeah. It gives no indication of why the Avengers forced Spider-Man to have a number of tests, or what the heart clinic is, and why Spider-Ock wanted the scanner that he went there for. You really need to have read, read Amazing Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, yeah. Superior Spider-Man number eight to get that Spider-Ock wanted this scanner to read his brain after he spotted the brainwave patterns of them and the Avengers scanned him. Mm. There he discovered a girl who was dying and he used the helmet to help fix her head, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Did she have some kind of aneurysm or something? I something so, like yeah. that, wasn't it? Whilst performing this operation, Peter tried to stop him, yeah. thinking that Otto would kill the girl. And that plays into this storyline. I, I don't read the recap pages, really. Um, well, I read them purely for the purposes of this one to see if they worked. Yeah. And I didn't think this one did. Mm. I thought this one was, was a My bit of a My favourite thing to read is the, uh, the letters pages. I like the letters pages. I just love reading them in Superior Spider, especially in the first couple of issues when everyone just moaned and groaned and the writers <laughs> was just like, fine, stop reading it. Um, my only complaint about the AR app in this one is that the letters pages are in the AR app. Are they? Yeah, Ellie Pyle reads the letters on camera. And I'm like, no! If I've written a letter to Spider-Man, I want it in the letters page. Yeah. I don't want it on a goddamn AR app that you won't be able to look at in 20 years. Mm. Or, or probably three. <laughs> uh, page two, Otto Pete has a quite funny conversation with the living brain, calling it adult, and the cantankerous contraption, which reminded me of Dr. Smith and the robot in Lost in Space, mm. which I don't know if what slot was going for, but at, at any minute I was expecting him to call it bubble-headed booby, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. I don't get that Otto Pete is quite as effeminate as Dr. Smith. Mm. <laughs> He's using that robot for other purposes. <laughs> That's a bit gross. <laughs> um... <laughs> Pages 4 and 5 are pretty damn good two-page spread of Peter within his own memories. 
The sky is dominated by Dr. Octopus's face and Peter is on a street that on one side has Midtown High and another the Daily Bugle, whilst in the background the Brooklyn Bridge. Interestingly, sorry, it was pointed out to me in the Superior Spider-Man podcast, which that's quite a good show. I like that show. That whenever we see Peter in his dreamscape, the lettering is never accurate, as if Peter is in the section of the brain that doesn't have language or reading skills. I never noticed this. In when I, was, I reread all nine issues for this, yeah, and I didn't it completely pass me by. But I did find that very interesting because I found it would explain why Peter could only use Otto Pete's one arm. So he's only like in the hemisphere of the brain that controls certain yeah. parts of the body, and it's not where your reading skills are. I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, maybe it was just me. No, no, yeah. <laughs> Um, as Otto destroys the memories, the buildings collapse, which is a nice visual showing what Peter was going through. On this page, the bugle collapses and we see Peter desperately trying to remember the name of friends and colleagues in an effort to stay sentient, if you will. There was a nice mix of names here instead of the usual suspects. We get Joe Mercado, Lance Bannon, Ned Leeds and Ben Urich, Nora Winters and the name Peter struggles to remember, which is Nick Katzenberg. Joy Mercado was a sexy young reporter for the Daily Bugle, who Peter was regularly partnered with in the early days of Web of Spider-Man by David Michelini. Lance Bannon was a rival photographer for the Bugle, who Peter was inadvertently caught in a love triangle with in Stern's Amazing Spider-Man run. Ned Leeds goes all the way back to the Lee Ditko days as Peter's rival for Betty Brant's affections and was ultimately killed off by the foreigner who thought he was the Hobgoblin. Ben Urich was the guy who discovered Matt Murdock was Daredevil and appeared in the movie played by Joey Pantilianuni. Pantil... Pantil whatever his Joey name is. Pants. Joey Pants, yeah. Nora Winters was another also-ran female Bugle reporter, and Nick Katzenberg was a low-life photographer for the Bugle who specialised in salacious and tabloid material who died of cancer. Uh, Peter manages to rebuild the Bugle. I saw a lot of criticism of this, calling it continuity porn. Okay. I didn't think that was continuity porn. No, I, I don't... I, I, that just reeks of criticism for the sake of criticism, to be honest. The whole point of the story is... Is Peter trying to cling on to his memories. Yeah. And trying to remember obscure things. So why criticise that when that's the point of the story? Yeah, um, yeah. I'm I really liked the continuity in this, to be honest. Yeah, because it's not... Oh, it's not beating you over the head with how clever he is. And it's not continuity, it's Peter's life. Yeah, and he's remembering people. I liked that he's not remembering the usual suspects. It isn't George Stacey and Gwen Stacey and yeah. Uncle Ben. He's remembering a bunch of people that chances are a lot of people won't even remember. Well, I didn't know who they were, and I liked that I didn't know who they were. You're sure you knew Ben Urich? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that... <laughs> Thanks, Ange. That proves that Peter Parker had a life, and that I wasn't reading it, but he had a life yeah, before I was to me, that's not continuity, Paul. That's just continuity. Yeah. But that's just me, you know. Other people may disagree. I, I actually liked how he forgot. Yeah, as it slowly starts to crumble, he forgets Nick Katzenberg's name. Mm. And you can even argue, well, maybe you wouldn't even remember who Nick Katzenberg was. No. He's a minor character and he appeared in a handful of issues. But the fact that he now definitely doesn't know who yeah. he is. Which was... I thought it was a nice touch, actually. I thought mm. it was quite good. Page 8. This is what causes Ock to enter the mindscape and attack Peter directly. In the mind, Peter appears as Peter and Ock as himself, which implies this is how Octavius still sees himself. Yeah. He still sees himself as the pudgy scientist rather than as Peter Parker. So what would be interesting to me is if Peter starts putting weight on. Yeah. I think that would be a nice touch. Yeah. 
Maybe just too much exercise. Yeah. I, I, um, there's a thing where Dr. Octopus appears as Dr. Octopus and not Dr. Otto Octavius. Yes. Well, he probably sees himself now as Dr. Octopus, doesn't he? Yeah. Otto Octavius is someone that he tried to bury. Hmm. Because didn't he wasn't an abusive childhood grafted onto him after the fact as well? He was during this, yeah. Was it when Peter goes swinging around his memories? Oh, I'm sure that's been established before. Oh, was it? Yeah, I'm right. sure he slots just using something that's already been established. Right. That Peter that Otto was abused as a child by his dad. I don't think he was sexually abused, but well, wait until Miller or Ben Biscuit. <laughs> now, now, <laughs> positive. Remember, uh, Peter conjures up old friends and new. Which is a much more recognisable crew with appearances by all the usual suspects. Jonah, Mary Jane, Gwen and George Stacey. Some surprising figures like Arthur Stacey, George's brother. Ock retaliates by making Peter's fears real with the appearance of a number of arch foes. Again, the usual suspects, but with the master planner. I've seen him for a while. Mm. I liked the villain showing up. Yeah, I did. I thought it was great. It's the thing where, yeah, Peter's got all of his... His family and friends showing up, but he also has memories of the bad guy yeah, in his face. he's got all his rogues gallery, which the Beatles there and Craven and the Green Goblin and Salmon and Rhino and Kingpin and the Chameleon, the Master Planner and the Ringmaster and the Burglar that killed his dad and the Lizard and his Uncle Ben, sorry, and Mysterio and the Scorpion and the Molten Man and Electro. It's And it's a, a roll call of, of why he's got one of the best bad guy rosters in comics, isn't it? What this issue does miss out on, though, is the memories of Uncle Ben dying and Gwen Stacy dying. Now, yes, it has those again, but if Dr. Octopus is going to cripple the guy with his own memories, surely those are the two to go for. Yeah. But he's not trying to cripple him with his... He's trying to erase them. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you're going to try and crush him, let's go down the Gwen well again. Mm. I personally am glad they didn't do that. But we do get a panel of Uncle Ben being killed yeah again which didn't I personally didn't feel like that was being uh, shock value I no. read that as Uncle Ben he, he's it's going to be a traumatic yeah. experience for him again mm. yeah I'm, I'm glad they didn't go back to the Gwen Stacy well yeah. I'm glad they left that well enough alone but yeah this the death of Uncle Ben did work again but again I'm kind of thinking that they're going back to the Uncle Ben stuff a little too much now Probably can't now. If you well, yeah. If you think that Stan Lee mentioned Uncle Ben maybe two or three times in the first fifty issues of Spider-Man, yeah, that was pretty much it. And this, it seems like every time something happens to him now, it's all about Uncle Ben. Yeah. So one of my favourite times that's happened is in one of the Straczynski anniversary issues where he talks to him for five minutes. Yeah, and if they'd only done it that once and left it alone, yeah, that would have been fine. But they keep rehashing it because character. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I don't think they just keep doing it too much, but, you know. What's interesting to me was page 12. As Ock wipes out Peter's memories by killing his friends, Peter desperately tries to remember George Stacy's name, and Ock says, Captain who? So does Ock not recall being responsible for Captain Stacy's death, or does he not even know? I'm not sure. Well, is it not because they both share the same brain if Peter's forgetting does Dr. Octopus forget yeah the whole point of this after this Dr. Octopus has doesn't have Peter's so memories anymore he would have forgotten as well as Peter then yeah but my point is not that is that does Dr. Octopus himself not know that he killed George Stacey well not anymore but no well Doc Ock would still have all his old memories That's, forget Peter Parker right oh right, right does okay. Dr. Octopus not know he killed George Stacey don't know. Or does he not even remember doing it? 
because if you read those issues you could quite easily interpret it as Dr. Octopus knocks the chimney out of the way while going for Spider-Man he doesn't even know that that chimney fell down nearly killed that child George shoved him out of the way and was crushed under the bricks Dr. Octopus may not even know he killed George Stacey yeah I I actually thought they would have done a bit more with this because evidence that Dr. Ock has killed innocents would would have I thought have been a fine bullet for Peter to have in his gun. Yeah. Look what you did! Mm. Uh, but he doesn't use it, does he? It's no. mentioned and then it's just left hanging there. Yeah, and I would have thought that would have been something he would have easily used in his arsenal, but it's just not mentioned. Because you're not arguing that because he doesn't remember who he is. He doesn't have that bullet. Uh, well, Captain Stacy's there though. Yeah. So surely he remembers Captain Stacy, he remembers how Captain Stacy died. But then is that him disappearing on the yes, panel? Yes, that's him disappearing on the panel and going. He says Captain Stacy, Doc Ock says Captain Who. As I, he's disappearing. As he's disappearing. Surely Peter would have been, you killed him. But he doesn't He doesn't follow that line of thought at all. Yeah. I just wonder if he didn't, just didn't want to go down that well. Because, mm. you know, it points out that Dr. Octopus has killed innocents. Who knows? Uh, page 13... Dr. Octopus says Peter Parker no more. Yeah. Obvious nod to Amazing Spider-Man 50. Interestingly, and similar to how Bruce Banner would hulk out in the merged issue of the Hulk, Peter rips off his skin to reveal the Spider-Man costume underneath. That's one of my favourite visuals in this issue. It is good. When Dr. Octopus does it later, yeah. And Dr. Octopus does it as well later. It's good, that. It it does beg the question again, is Peter Parker Spider-Man or is Spider-Man Peter Parker? Peter Parker Spider-Man. But not according to this. Yeah, any yeah, but that's, that's expediency. Yeah, but it was a good visual. Yeah, but Peter Parker's not Bruce Wayne. You're right, he's not. You know what I mean. <laughs> Bruce Wayne is in many different interpretations of Batman. Is Batman's mask. Yeah, and Batman is actually the real person. That's what he's really like. Mm. Spider-Man is Peter Parker's outlet for his frustrations. Yeah, Spider-Man is what Peter does when he's had a bad day. He mm. goes out and swings around New York and goes. Woo-hoo! Look what I can do. Would that we could all do something like that. Yeah. Pages 14 and 15 in what is perhaps a callback to Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man's epic final battle issue by Bill Mantlo. When confronted by Spider-Man, Ock flees like a coward and genuinely seems scared of him. This confrontation is interesting as Peter plays the responsibility card on Ock, a man who just last issue saved the life of a child, and Ock uses this to gird his loins. He too rips off his skin, as Michael mentioned. Michael? Michael. As Michael mentioned, sorry about that, and says the responsible act is for him to be Spider-Man and mention all the ways he's improved on Peter's life whilst being Spider-Man. It's weird to be in agreement with the bad guy, Mm. but Ock has improved Peter's life. Granted, he's also killed a man in cold blood, but he was a bad guy. Yeah. Who'd murdered lots of people, including Ashley Kafka. Yeah. Which is the interesting little grey area that Ock is occupying that Peter Parker would never be in. Mm. Which is what's interesting about the story and there's a little bit I liked where he says but uh, you acted selfishly as well by stopping me from saving that little girl yeah well we'll come to that in a minute um, yeah. I did like the Spider-Man vs. Spider-Man fight I like the art how it's obvious who's who yeah it's Ox costumes are darker blue isn't it and his eyes and masks different yeah Yeah, which recalls not only the end of the clone saga but also Superman 3 yeah. Well, Superman's evil costume was a dark blue. wanted to drive Parker. 
Love your chumps. Page 17 is a nine panel grid recalling the Ditko era. If I can find it. Uh, Ryan Stegman's art is absolutely phenomenal, this issue. Yeah. Isn't it? I don't know who Ryan Stegman is or where he came from, he, but he's doing a damn fine job on this book. I remember him uh, as being a um, Ramos ripoff doing the very covers to Amazing uh, Events vs. X-Men. Right. He's not a Ramos ripoff in this, though. Not anymore. I think he, he is kind of in the first issue but he's gotten into his own style yeah now. he's evolved into his own it has that cartoony stuff that cartoony feel yeah that Ramos's stuff has but, but it doesn't have any of Ramos's exaggerated anatomy no but looking at those Avengers vs X-Men variant covers he did he never has a consistent art style he's been pretty consistent in this though hasn't he yeah he's been very good in this I've been quite impressed with um, Mr Stegman uh, page 19 Peter is defeated as Ock claims that he tried to prevent Ock from operating on the little girl in a previous issue. That he would sacrifice her to save himself makes him unworthy of being Spider-Man. This isn't actually how it played out, and Peter would know that. Mm-hmm. Ostensibly, Peter tried to stop Ock because he didn't trust him and felt that he was as likely to kill the little girl as save her. There was no element of self-preservation at play. And I thought, well, I kind of thought this this threw off the ending. As Ock wins on a technicality that Peter should have been able to counter. Mm. In addition, a Peter Parker that would knowingly sacrifice a small girl to his own life doesn't really jibe with the Peter Parker we've been reading about for 50-odd years. And the ending actually felt a little bit too contrite because of it. Yeah. It's perfectly in keeping with the arc that Slot's been writing that he would exploit this, the one good thing he's done since becoming Spider-Man, and use it to beat Peter down. But there are any number of ways I felt Peter could have countered this. I just like the little selfish flaw in him, though. Well, the fact that he does have that flaw is one of the reasons we love Peter Parker. Yeah. But I didn't think Peter would have crumbled here because that's not what he was doing. He goes, I did it because I knew you may spot me and there was a risk. And he makes it that he was selfishly trying to kill that little girl to save his own neck. Mm. And that's not how it played in the issue. And I don't think Peter would have crumbled, though. I think Peter would have said, no, that's not what I was doing. You're the bad guy. I didn't know you were going to help her. I thought you were just as likely to kill her. But and you killed George Stacy, so get off my back. Even then, do you know of the thing where Peter could have killed the girl by not trusting him? Well, the other interpretation of this is that Ock is exploiting the idea that Peter did that deliberately. Yeah. And it's something that Peter may not have thought about at the time that he was doing it. But now that he's looking back on it and Dr. Octopus is making him look at it, Peter sees that Dr. Octopus is actually right in what he's saying. Mm. But I still think Peter would have said, no, that's not what I was doing. But, you know, I mean, you can read it both ways, which is probably why it works. Mm -hmm. And it is cute and heartbreaking as Midtown High School comes crashing down around Peter's ears and he can't remember his own name. Yeah. Which was 
and it was quite gut wrenching. The little panels that go slowly yeah. from colour to black. And um, there's a lovely little continuity thing here where he thinks his name's Peter Palmer. Yeah. Where I got that. Stanley in one of Marvel Age's best ever goofs. Yeah. In Amazing Spider Man 1, he calls Peter Parker Peter Palmer. Not once, but three times. <laughs> um, Stegman's art, like Michael's just pointed out, all the tiny square panels as it leads down to just a black square is very effective in these couple of pages. Mm. And it's um, it's very good. Uh, the AR app's a, bit, a little bit better this time around. It looks like it was shot professionally for one, and not like Matt Fractions, which looks like he was done on his phone. On the fucking... <laughs> Can't look back with you. Yeah. Um, I thought this was a really good issue. Slot's been teasing us with Peter Parker visions since the title was relaunched, and many, myself included thought this was how Peter was going to come back. Ridding himself of all remnants of Peter Parker in this way really does make it seem as if this is going to be permanent. It probably isn't. Mm -hmm. But it's telling a pretty intriguing story, and the twist is part of the appeal. And now how this will all end is part of what's making the story readable. You know how this will all end. Dr. Octopus will uh, do something that can override him with guilt. Ah. Complete and utter guilt. Like, he just cannot continue being Spider-Man anymore. So he makes a deal with Mephisto. You think that's how it's going to end? One ock in time. And then everything goes back and Peter and Mary Jane are married again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we go from there. <laughs> that has to be quite good. That would really screw people's yeah, heads. Yeah. Um, Ryan Stegman's art's clean and detailed and wonderful in many cases, while still having that cartoony style appropriate for a comic. Um, maybe there are a few two continuity references, possibly. But I like, liked it. But Peter's remembering his life, so, so it worked. arguably that's continuity. It didn't take me out of the story, and mm. it didn't make me go, oh, that's an obscure reference or anything. Uh, Slots received a lot of flack for this storyline, and both he and editor Steve Wacker seemed to delight in winding people up on message boards and in interviews. Both of them have said this issue would make people angry. Yeah. Uh, well, if that was the intent, they failed. Because this yeah. did not make me angry. It, it left me wanting to find out what's going to happen next, mm. if anything. Um, I think Slot has done a really good job of coming into his own in this story. Especially what he's doing is no different to what DC did with Superman and Batman in the 90s. Yeah. And what Marvel tried to do with the Clone Saga and failed. And that is to completely destroy the character that the audiences know and love in an effort to show what it is about them that makes that character great in the first place. Oh, could you not say like this is just being like Ultimate Spider-Man? Um, Dr. Octopus's Miles Morales. Well, it does beg the question, why do we need Ultimate Spider-Man then? Yeah. Do we even need the Ultimate Universe anymore? Has that served its purpose and should be shuffled off? Ultimate is no longer hip, cool and trendy. Well, Ultimate is no longer necessary. No. I would argue. Mm. They fixed all the mainstream books. Yeah. There's no need for the Ultimate Universe anymore. I mean, is it even selling very well anymore? I've no idea. There seems like a thousand... Well, that's another thing as well. in the Ultimate Verse. The Ultimate Verse is now just, if not more confusing... Yeah. ...than the regular Marvel it's Universe. It's not even told in, in stories. It's like every... It's, it's told... In a linear narrative, but in different miniseries. Yes. So and so, you need to know which miniseries goes to, in what order. Yeah. yeah, I think that's even more confusing. Yeah. See, personally, I'm of the opinion the Ultimate Universe has served its purpose and, and should be left alone. Yeah. But it's Bendis's baby, 
And as long as he's loved in the, the Marvel halls, <laughs> they're not going to get rid of it, are they? No. It's as simple as that. Um, ultimately, I think it's just like Death of Superman on Nightfall. It's a ride, and I'm really enjoying it. As long as the superior Spider-Man doesn't outstay his welcome, this could actually be a well-remembered storyline a couple actually, of years down the road. I actually want it to stay. Forever? Yeah. I see. I don't see that working. I mean, a lot of people have said that Spider-Man 2 is coming up, so whether or not... because You'll bring him back then. Well, the theory is you can't be publishing a Spider-Man comic around the time of the film that doesn't have Peter Parker in it. Because the Ultimate Universe doesn't have Peter Parker in it anymore either. Yeah. So you can't be publishing two Spider-Man books where Peter Parker's dead in both of them, and yet Amazing Spider-Man has Peter Parker in it. But then you also can't change the comic to fit the movies and any new readers. No, but also, do you not think that that would be long enough for him to tell this story? Amazing Spider-Man 2 is not out till next summer. Yeah. So he's got another year of doing Superior Spider-Man, and Superior Spider-Man is a boot that ships twice a month. Mm-hmm. So there's another 20-odd issues of this story. I think that's enough. But what if they do plan to stick with it? What if it turns into well, they Captain ca- you America? you can't say that, though. Because at some point, Dan Slott will leave Spider-Man. But we were saying that about Captain America, and look what happened there. What am with Captain America? With Booker, as Captain America. We were all saying he can't be in for that long, but he was. But ultimately, he's not anymore. After Ed Brubach is off the book, Steve Rogers is back as Captain America. Now, I know Brubacher put Cap back, Yeah. but the point is still the same. At some point... Dan Slott will not be writing Spider-Man. Steve Wacker will not be editing Spider-Man. And Marvel or Disney or whoever it is that controls these things now will say, I think we need Peter Parker back. Yeah. And somebody will come along and put Peter Parker back. I do think if they are going to do it, it's... It it shouldn't be because of the movie. No. The movie should not ride the comic books. Mm. Or drive the comic books. Yeah. But increasingly, that seems the way it's going. Do you think it's a coincidence Superman ended up with a new costume the year before Man of Steel came out? Probably not. In a different costume? Yeah. See? So, there is a certain aspect... I mean, there's a certain aspect of the movies have always played into the comics, and the comics have always played into the movies. Mm. But ultimately, I think this will not last, even if it lasts for five years, because at some point, Dan Slott won't be writing this title anymore. Yeah. And the minute he's not writing this title anymore, somebody's going to say, I think we need Peter Parker back. Mm. And that's what'll happen. But as it stands, Superior Spider-Man's pretty damn good. Yep. I'm enjoying it. Mm-hmm. That's all I want from a comic book. Yeah. Um, Fantastic Four, you know how great it is to be able to say Fantastic Four's brilliant again. Mm. Um, Hawkeye's magnificent. Daredevil's magnificent. Hulk's magnificent. Yep. Captain America is on a tier beneath those, but... For some reason, I'm still enjoying it. Yeah. I can't quite articulate why I'm enjoying it, but I am. But that storyline is ending, because that's going to be interesting as well. Hmm. The Captain America book is going to be the first one where the Marvel now status quo, if you will, ends within nine or ten issues. The Dimension Z storyline is finishing. Yeah. And then the next story arc will kick off. Remainder's still writing it, but Carlos Pacheco's doing the art, and that will be a completely new story. So yeah. that's going to be interesting to see. Should they then have renumbered it at number one again? Well, no, because it's the same series. Yeah, but see, yeah. Okay. That's just a thought. 
So um, you're saying like DC still t- um, title their books as the new 52? Yeah. If they stop doing that, they should renumber it. No, I think every year they should just renumber them back to number one. Every year they should do issue 12, and then right. next issue, volume 4, issue 1. Okay. And then another year, volume 5, issue 1. And they should just forget about... Continuity. Con- no, no, not continuity, but they should forget that numbering a series isn't any way important anymore. Because it isn't. No. Is it? You've got a bunch of trade paperbacks on your shelf. You don't care what order the comics were. I guess, yeah. So, that's just my thing. Uh, in conclusion, let's wrap this up, man, because we've done another long one. I uh-huh. wanted these to be 90 minutes. Think two issues. Uh, in conclusion, for the most part, Marvel now has been a success because mm. we've batted seven for seven with the issues Michael. we chose. Yeah, but that's they're the ones we've read. Yeah, we've, of all the issues we of all the Marvel now books we've read, none of them have been crap. <laughs> that's because we're reading them. Well, yeah. Um, I think they've all had some merit, something to recommend them, and the other books we haven't covered have been enjoyable. Jeff Lubb and Ed McGuinness's relaunch Nova is pretty entertaining. Mm. Although I've I've only read the first issue because that's the only one I found in the cheapy bins. Yeah, but it was damn good, and I enjoyed it. Uh, Bendis's Guardians of the Galaxy looks quite fun. Mm. I'm willing to give that a go. Uh, also, this has been a fairly well executed stunt. Yeah, we'll just have to see how long it continues. What do you think? Of Marvel Now, or? Yeah, of, of the Marvel Now thing, generally, in comparison to New 52 and the ones that we've read. I, I just think it, it will always reek of trying to be like DC. Yeah, but they've done it better. But they've not done anything. Exactly. So, so, so Marvel Now proves that to be successful, you have to make a big deal out of doing nothing. Yeah. That's what marketing is. <laughs> Essentially, this is brand new while it's been exactly the same. Yeah. It's a remarkable achievement if you can pull that off. The Daleks in Doctor Who, the redesigned Daleks in Doctor Who, are completely different from the Daleks of the original show. There is not one piece of Dalek, new Dalek, that is the same as the old Daleks. Mm. Yet they look exactly the same. But if you are going to do something like this. Like, DC were better at doing the reboot because they did a reboot. Whereas Marvel have done nothing at all but add a new banner on the comics. Yeah. And yet, which has been the more entertaining reads consistently? See? (laughs) We don't want change. As comic book readers, we are terrified of change. We want the same thing every week. But we don't want the same thing every week. We want (laughs) it to seem like it's different. Well, it, it, so if you read a comic with a different variant cover, it's the no, same. No, no, variants don't count. Variants <laughs> are just different covers, yeah. That's fine. I honestly think they've pulled off a remarkable achievement here. They've changed nothing whilst changing everything. And they've done it really well. Fair play to them. Yeah. I've stuck with more Marvel Now books than I've stuck with DC 52 books. It's because we were reading more 52 books. No, see... So there was a cost. Even of the core ones. I'm basically down to Batman... Superman Unchained, which I haven't actually read yet, but I'm willing to give it a go. Mm. And Batman Superman, and I'm picking up Al Star Western in the 50p bins as and when. And yeah. you, you're reading four new 52 books? Constantine, Justice League Dark. And you're not getting Constantine Animal anymore. Man, Green Arrow. Am I not? No, but I like Green Arrow. Why won't you, you stop getting it? I thought you said stop getting it with issue three, it was crap. No, I'm, I'm kind of getting into it. It's Oops. weird. It's, oh well. <laughs> 
It's kind of like the Real Housewives of the DC comics. Don't even mention it's, that filth to you me. You want to hate it, but you kind of get into it. No, no, I, I hate it. <laughs> I hate the Real Housewives. <laughs> Vacuous tramps, each and every one of them. You say that, but you remember the names. And on that bombshell, next week is... Um, one of the things that did surprise me about Happy Birthday Superman was how well you, you yeah, Michael, me. responded to Steranko's issue 400 story. So next week we're going to be doing a Steranko retrospective where we look at his three issue Captain America run. And then the week after that I turn the con over to Michael again yep. for a Michael episode. Two Michael episodes. Two Michael episodes where we cover the Metal Gear Solid comics, and apparently I have to play the game yeah. to understand the comics. You don't have to understand them, it's just better. It's just fun, is it? The game's better. Yeah. Uh, and we've rambled on far too long tonight and done one of those episodes that we don't like doing that's nearly two hours long. I like to keep these to 90 minutes, but uh, we failed miserably. Yes. So we will return next time. Uh, we hope you can join us. Thank you. Good night. Goodbye. sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only and no infringement is intended so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show is not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics.